Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Lord, we do surrender to you. You are the conquering king. We are the vanquished um, rebels. And Lord, we are so grateful that you won and that you've called us to be your own. Lord, that you didn't um, put us in chains and fetters and, and in dungeons, but Lord, instead you adopted us to be the sons of God um, in, in a wonderful way that we look to our big brother, Jesus, and thank you that he has won that battle. Thank you for that, Lord. And uh, Lord, the, um, the blessings that we have by walking with you, by following you are many, and we want to remember them on a regular basis. And so Lord, help us to be thankful for being your people. And Lord, I want to pray for my sister Joanne again, as she's still in the hospital. Lord, I ask that you would work a mighty miracle in just um, getting her knee surgery scheduled. Um, just something that would be uh, incredible, something that she would be able to tell um, her nurses and, and doctors, this is the work of the Lord. Uh, so Lord, would you please do something like that? Whatever you know is best for her and for uh, those who are attending to her and for us as, as her uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. But Lord, we pray that you would sustain her and strengthen her, walk with her through uh, this difficulty. And Lord, Holy Spirit, would you seal her and remind her that you've sealed her. Give her strength, we pray. And Father, we also want to pray for uh, um, Katie Crawford's mom, uh, with the chemotherapy starting soon and, and the radiation treatment beginning, Lord, um, we just pray for her as the, the cancer is spread to her bones and pain is involved. Uh, so, Lord, would you uh, give her strength through all of this? And, and Lord, the, the bone pain makes it difficult to walk. And, Lord, we know this pattern. When you stop exercising, when you stop moving, it's kind of a downhill slide. So I just pray that you would give her the strength, um, the, the relief from the pain uh, to continue to move and keep her strong. And Lord, we're grateful that you sent um, Chris and Katie to them before this, this diagnosis came out. And uh, we pray that they would be a blessing to the family. Have mercy on the whole group, we pray. And Lord, I want to thank you especially this week for our Supreme Court. Not your Supreme Court, but our Supreme Court, who secured for us um, religious freedom in two uh, important cases this week. And Lord, we, we shouldn't take those things for granted. We should be grateful for the, the things that you do. Lord, we know that your church will survive and thrive because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of uh, the, the strength of the gospel, uh, regardless of the degree of religious freedom that, that the church has. But Lord, we're grateful for what you've given us. And so um, I pray that uh, your church would not um, flout it, would not squander it, would not trumpet it as if this is some sort of wonderful entitlement we have, but Lord, that we would um, delight in the freedoms that you've given us. And Lord, may we use it not for our comfort and benefit, but for the furtherance of the gospel in this land. And Lord, to that end, I want to pray again and ask you, would you please bring revival to our country? Lord, would you bring revival to our state, uh, to our valley, to our city, and, and to our church? Uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you move in wonderful and, and majestic ways and, uh, and bring people to a saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ is? And Lord, we want this not for ourselves, but for the glory of Christ and for the furtherance of his kingdom. And Lord, it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. So by way of introduction to the sermon, I want to read you um, a devotion I read the other day from uh, Daily Strength. It's uh, men's devotional. Um, it's, there's one left on the table if you hear this and this sounds good to you. But the point is what they said in this devotional, they said better than I probably will. 
and I really think it sets up the sermon for us. So here, here we go. This is for a devotion on Jeremiah 33, written by Paul House. As the Babylonian army attacked Jerusalem, Jeremiah languished in a makeshift jail. All around him, desperate, depressed people were coming to terms with the end of all they had ever known. The land lay desolate. Many believed that God had forsaken his people. In this seemingly hopeless situation, the Lord reminds Jeremiah that his covenant promises and mercies never fail. There is always hope. More specifically, the Davidic Messiah is the key to hope for all covenant promises merge in him. Because the Messiah was coming, there was hope for Jerusalem. The capital city was collapsing under the weight of injustice and unrighteousness. Yet when the Messiah comes, the city will bear the Messiah's character and name. It will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. He will execute justice and righteousness. Because the Messiah was coming, there's hope for the priesthood. Babylon destroyed the temple and scattered the priests. Yet Messiah's rule will include an enduring priesthood. Because the Messiah was coming, there was hope for the monarchy and the people. David's lineage must always have a member on the throne. God's people cannot disappear. He will always have mercy on them and preserve them. We saw in chapter 31, these promises are as sure as the fixed order of night and day. Christians believe Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Davidic Messiah. We believe that all of God's covenant promises are kept through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Yet Jerusalem fell after Jesus came, and even today, many centuries later, God's people are in danger in many places. How will God keep these promises? The New Testament writers are unanimous in their answer. Jesus will come again. He will judge all wickedness when he comes. He will rule forever in a new Jerusalem, on a new heaven and a new earth. His death on our behalf already makes him our sacrifice and chief priest. And he has called us to be his kingdom of priests, ministers to others in this world. When he comes again, nothing will interrupt our worship. Nothing will ever harm us again. So we take hope in what heartened Jeremiah centuries ago. The Messiah is coming. He will resolve all terrible situations. Until then, we do not just wait. We wait with confident hope. And that's what our message this morning is in, in this second half of chapter 23. Chapter 23 really is one longer story, but we break it into two. And the center part is verse 14, which I had um, um, it read again this morning. And the key there is God did not give him into his hand. God did not give David into Saul's hand. And that, that theme of hand has come up a couple of times. It's going to come up a couple of more times. What it means is hand is authority, power, control. Um, he did not give David into Saul's power, into his control. Um, so this week we're going to see the story is, again, the struggle between David and Saul. That's what it's going to be through the rest of the book, is the struggle between David and Saul. But this week when we look at it, it's going to take three sections, three movements, and it's going to focus on three different people. So the first section, the first movement of this struggle between Saul and David is Jonathan. And what he represents to us is encouragement. And then the second one is the Ziphites. And the Ziphites are going to show us what it looks like when we face oppression. 
And then finally, the surprise one at the end, and I've already given away the, wet, the, the ending, you know, um, um, should have given a warning first, is the Philistines. And what the Philistines are going to represent in the most bizarre way is deliverance. So now let's go ahead and take a look at this. Let's work through this section and see what's going on. So David is still in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness of Ziph, um, and Saul is continuing to seek him. So uh, verse 15 says that when David saw that Saul had uh, came to seek out his life. Um, remember last week, I, I don't know if you remember, I said that the chronology of these stories is not exactly perfect because the way the author is presenting us this to us is not chronologically, but thematically. He's, he's focusing on different people. And so things jump around a little bit. It's not terribly important, but I just think it, it makes sense here that David saw that Saul had come out to seek him. Well, he hasn't come out yet. He doesn't come out until verse 19. Um, but what does come out is Jonathan comes out to him. Well, how did Jonathan know where David was, but Saul didn't until the Ziphites came? So it's possible that this happens after the Ziphites came and they told Saul, David is, is in the land of Ziph. He's out in the wilderness. Jonathan heard that. He didn't need to have a big entourage go with him. He could just take off and go see his friend. And so he could get down there first before his father came. So that's what I mean. The chronology is not, not really ironclad here. Um, and it's not important. Let's go with the themes that, that the author is presenting us. So the first theme is, is Jonathan. And Jonathan's son Saul arose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. So there's that theme of hand again. Now, strengthened his hand is a, is a Hebrew idiom. It means to encourage, to build up, to, to cause him to rely on. So David's hand is strengthened not in his ability and his cleverness, but in God. And that's what his friend Jonathan came to do, was not to say, hey, let's scheme and figure out a way to take dad out of the, out of the picture or something. He comes and he says, David, God is with you. And, and what a blessing. Isn't that exactly what David needed at this moment? He's on the run. He's been opposed. He was in, remember last week it was Kalia. He was in the city and he, and he asked the Lord, are they going to turn me over? Yes, they are. And he has to run again. It would be really easy to be discouraged at this point because he can't settle anywhere. He's constantly moving. And Jonathan comes to strengthen him in the Lord. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we need when we're in distress, when we're struggled, when we're running, is we need a friend to come alongside us and say, God's with you and to remind us of these great and precious promises that he's given us. So then what Jonathan says to him is, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. Now, if my chronology is right, Saul and an army are on the way, and Jonathan's saying, don't worry, dad's not going to find you. Um, why? He says, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Jonathan recognizes David is going to be king. He knows it. Now, how does he know that? Perhaps because they're such good friends, perhaps David finally told him, Samuel came to my dad's house when I was a little kid, and he anointed me and told me I was going to be king. And maybe he told his friend that. We don't know. It's not terribly important. What we do know is Jonathan's figured it out. He knows that this is going to happen. And it says, and I will be next to you. Literally, it says, I will be second. Don't miss that. What's Jonathan's position now? He is the heir apparent. If David was not in the picture, which, you know, Saul had his way, he wouldn't be. If, if David was not in the picture, Jonathan would be the one who ascends to the throne. He has everything to inherit, and yet he looks at David and he says, I'll be your second. I'll be your prime minister. I'll be your, your, um, 
your uh, Viscount. I'll be your assistant. I'll be the second to you. And that to him is not bad news. That's great news. So don't forget this, David. God's going to put you on the throne, and I'm going to be right there with you, buddy. We're going to do this together. This is going to be great. My father will not find you because God is the one who's doing this. And then the startling thing, he says, and Saul, my father, knows this. Finally, we get the idea, why is Saul so stinking paranoid? Because he knows what's coming. He knows David is going to ascend to the throne. And if David ascends to the throne, that means Saul is not on the throne. And so he, that, that's the whole picture. That's who's, who Saul is. He, is. he is railing against David, opposing him, oppressing him, chasing him. He wants to take him out. And so the two men again, we're, we're presented with the two men again. Jonathan, who says, this is great news. I get to be second to you. And Saul, who says, this is terrible news. I'm going to take you out. Two different options. And so they made a covenant before the Lord. Another covenant, don't know what it is, doesn't matter. David remanded Horish, and Jonathan went home. So if my timeline is right, if Saul is on the way here, then what that means is Jonathan said, I'm not going with you, Dad. I'm not going to attack my friend. And he went home. So that's the first thing is this, this picture of encouragement. Now, where we're at is in, in our, our timeline, we're with David out in the fields. We're out in the wilderness with David, right? Jesus has come. He's ascended into heaven, and he is not sitting on the throne of the earth yet. He's ruling from heaven, but not on earth. And there's plenty of opposition and there's plenty of danger and plenty of, of, of people opposing us and oppressing us and all of that. And so we're out in the wilderness of Ziph wandering around. Um, we've been given a mission. We're on, on, on a call, but we have been oppressed. We will be oppressed. We will be in, uh, uh, people in opposition to each other. What do we need? What word do we need as we're, as we're struggling through this? Is there's times when we have great freedoms and times when we're really, um, uh, our freedoms are taken away and, and religion is outlawed. And, and how do we deal with that? We need Jonathan. We need Jonathan to come and tell us, the Lord's here. Jesus is going to return. He's going to sit on the throne. This, guy, this is from 1 Thessalonians 4. Sorry, Dan, I'm jumping ahead in Sunday school. Come again, he'll tell you the right interpretation. But listen to this from chapter 4. Paul says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord always. Paul gives the Thessalonians this beautiful glimpse of Jesus' return. This, this notion, look, the people who died first are not going to miss out. They will be the first to rise. And we're who on the earth, we're not going to miss out because we'll be caught up with them and we'll, we'll accompany our great king to his return. This is important. This is really important. something that Paul says we have to know because the very next verse says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. The return, the promise, the hope of the return of Jesus Christ is to meant to encourage us. It's there to help build us up not to bring fear and, and what's going to happen in the meantime. Jesus is coming back. He is going to return. And when he does, it will be glorious. David, you're going to ascend to the throne and I'll be your second. I'll be next to you. And, and that's the promise that we have is Jesus in, in um, Revelation 3, he says, and, and those who endure, you'll sit on my throne with me. You reign with me. You'll rule with me. That's something that Jesus has said a couple of times is we will be with him 
as he rules, we'll be his second. So that's the hope we need here in the wilderness of Ziph. When times are good, when times are bad, when people like us, when people don't like us, when it comes and it goes, how do we maintain steadfast? How do we stand firm? Encourage each other with these words. And you're not going to necessarily just remember it yourself. You need a brother or a sister to come and say, but Jesus is going to return. I lost my job for a stupid reason. I didn't do anything wrong. They just fired me. Jesus is coming back. It'll be okay. It, it, seems, it seems like fleeting in the moment. Like, how, how can that be an encouragement? But we'll see because what's going to happen in the end is deliverance. So this is the picture we get of Jonathan. We need Jonathan's reminder of God's promise, of our future, and of the blessing that we will be together with our, our Davidic king, our Davidic Messiah forever. So that's the picture as Jonathan now goes home. Now we, I think we step back in time. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah. This is verse 19 saying, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish? So last week, remember with the, the uh, town of Kaliah, uh, Kalia, they didn't do anything. David came down and delivered them from the Philistines and they didn't do anything. But what David found out is when Saul shows up here, they're going to just turn me over. So that's bad. This is worse. The Ziphites go, hey, we found David, go tell Saul. They know that the king is after David, and so they go and they tell on him. They say this is exactly where he's at. They give detailed instruction of where he's at. And then they say, um, so king, you do what your heart's desire is, and on our part, we'll hand him over to the king's hand. We'll, we'll deliver him into the king's hand. We'll, we're going to give David into the power, into the authority of King Saul. That's their plan. So Saul, he's, he's been around this block once or twice, and he says, maybe blessed by God because you've had compassion on me. Remember last week? Poor me. Nobody likes me. You didn't tell me that my son made a covenant. Oh, I'm such a, yeah, you big baby. You're the king of Israel. So blessed because you have compassion on me. I'm the most important person in the room, and you had compassion on me. That, that's great. Go and make more sure. I just want you, I know how this guy is. I want you to go back and double check. Go and make more sure. Know the place where his foot is. Where is his camp? Where is he settled? What's he doing? Find out and give, come back to me. And so they, they go and they take it, and they come back to Saul, and they say, we found him. Here it is. And so Saul gathers his troops. They arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. They go and accompany him on his return. And so the men of David are in the wilderness of Moan. This is probably down by the Red Sea or the uh, Dead Sea. So they're, they're in some of that really rocky, nasty terrain, um, pretty far south in Israel, uh, in the Arabah of the south of Jeshman. The Arabah is south, so it's in the south of the south, basically, down in the, in the lower parts. Saul and his men went to seek him. So remember from verse uh, um, 14, 15, 16, 15. The beginning of what I said, said David knew that Saul had come out to seek him. Um, this is why I say I think this backs up. So Saul and his men went out to seek him, and David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness. And Saul heard it, and he pursued after David in the wilderness. So here's the picture, is David knows that Saul is on his way. He's gone into a really diff difficult terrain to get to. He's trying to escape. And Saul shows up, and he comes, and you've got a mountain range. And on one side is David, and on the other side is Saul and, and his men. And so the, the picture here is that Saul, it appears that he split up his troop and he's circling around the mountain. 
and he's going to do this pincer movement where he's going to come together and capture him in the middle. And David knows about this. He finds out about this somehow, and so he's hurrying to get away from that pincer movement. So here we are in the wilderness. We're, we're waiting for Jesus' return. We have this hope. We have this promise. But we also have opponents, people who are not happy about us. Um, some of the things that people say Christianity does is pretty bad, that we oppress people, that we hate women, that we, um, you know, all of these kind of things. We get blamed for an awful lot. I think a fair amount of it was just because that's what our culture did. And our culture was largely influenced by Christianity, so we bear the brunt of it. But in reality, and if you back up and you look at it in a spiritual sense, people don't like us because we're men of God, we're women of God, we're speaking God's word in the midst of a broken and a crooked generation. And it's just difficult to do. It's, it's, we're going to stand out. There'll be times when they like us and there'll be times when they don't like us. And so this, this picture with the Ziphites coming and narking on David, that's what the opposition is. That's what the opposition is going to look like. But why are they mad at us? We haven't done anything. We're just Jesus' followers. We're just trying to follow him. So why are they mad at us? Well, when Jesus came, what did they do to him? They opposed him. They threatened him. They tried to ridicule him. They tried to track him. And when they couldn't do any of that, they killed him. So that's the world's attitude towards Jesus is, we don't want this. This is, this is not what we're after. So Jesus then raises from the dead and ascends into heaven. They can't get to him anymore. So who are they going to get to? His body on earth. As we're his troops, as we're following him, as we're carrying out his great commission, they have to eliminate us. They have to take us out because we're just doing what he told us to do. It's the same thing like if they're doing that pincer movement coming around the mountain trying to catch David. Are they just going to let all of his troops go free? Oh, you're not David. You can go. They're, they're, they're going to oppose those. Those are representatives of David's power, his, his growing authority within Israel. And so as we're following Christ in this world, the world is mad at us because not because we're so perfect and wonderful and pure, but because we're representing Jesus Christ. And the world is not happy about the coming of that kingdom. So that's the kind of opposition that we face. And this is nothing new. Jesus talked about this in, actually in uh, John 14, 15, and 16. It comes up a lot. But I think one of the verses that helps is the beginning of John chapter 16. Jesus says, they will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that you know that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus is saying, look, they think what they're doing is right. The people who want the church shut down in America, the people who oppose the church, don't, aren't doing it because they go, oh, we just want to be as horrible as we can. They're thinking this is better for humanity if we get rid of the church. If we just get rid of those nasty Christians, then we'll be free to flourish as we'd like. We can, we can act however we want. We don't need those judgmental Christians coming and telling us that. That's what Jesus has said is going to happen is they will think they're doing service to you. These Ziphites, as they come to tell Saul where David is, they're not saying, oh, we're just rotten people and we like screwing things up all the time. They are saying, look, king, you've got an opponent and we want to help you. They haven't stepped back and looked at the whole thing. So it can be confusing for us when we're opposed in the world, when people are coming against us and saying things against us. Why are you saying, where did you get that? I just had a, a Facebook discussion with an old friend of mine who used to be a Christian 
and I was talking about homosexuality as a sin, and he didn't understand that. And I tried to very carefully and lovingly say, look, this is the way that God has made the universe. It's just how we are. We, every cell is XX or XY. That's who we are. I'm not saying this just because I don't want homosexuals to be happy. I want human flourishing. And I thought we walked through it, and I thought I got him through, and he understood. He didn't agree. I knew we weren't going to agree, but I was hoping he would kind of see where I was at. And then the next day later, he was, so are you saying that all homosexuals are God-hating um, uh, sinners, non-Christians? Like, Dude, I thought we had it figured out. This is this. This is, if I'm following what Jesus has said, and I quoted Jesus to him. I said, Jesus said, have you not written that God created a male and female? Jesus said that. That's not me. He, he hasn't answered yet, but I, you get the idea is when we just simply say and do what Jesus has told us to do, it's going to come in conflict, and they're going to think that we're the problem and they're the solution. So that's the Ziphites, is they think the problem is David, the solution is, is Saul, and so they think they're doing the right thing. That's what, that's what opposition looks like for this. So what then does deliverance look like in this? Remember, God's promise to David is you are going to be on the throne. Jonathan has reminded him, you are going to be on the throne. So as the, 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 they're out in the wilderness and the troops are split up and they're coming in and they're closing in on David and David's scrambling up the mountain or down the mountain or wherever he's going, what does deliverance look like? It looks like the Philistines. <laughs> what? The Philistines who David has fought, they started, they started singing a song, David has killed his tens of thousands. Of Philistines, that's who he largely opposed. Saul is supposed to be on the throne to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And who comes to deliver David? The Philistines. It's amazing. It's, it's God's great sense of humor turning this whole thing upside down. So verse 26, and Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men uh, to capture them. And a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, the place is called the Rock of Escape. Do you think that the Philistines just happened to wind up showing up just at the right moment so that the messenger could get there just before David is captured? I just, you stack up the coincidences and it gets to be like what we would typically call impossible. This is not just a random thing. God is in charge. He is in charge of Saul. He is in charge of the Ziphites. He is in charge of the Philistines. He's in charge of David. And so he chose to deliver David in exactly this way. I am going to send Israel's greatest enemy against Israel so that Saul has to go and deal with it. He's going to do what I told him he's going to do, whether he wants to or not. So you could just picture Saul in the moment. We have almost got him. We're catching up to him. We, we can see the trail. We know where he's at. And then a messenger comes and goes, hey, the Philistines. And he's like, oh, okay, we'll go deliver Israel. God is the one who does this. And so when we're in the midst of the wilderness, when we're being pursued, when, when the pressure is coming in, we remember those promises that Jonathan told us about. But we need to remember this too. Now, the psalm that's associated with this is Psalm 54, but it's really short. The one that I think highlights what the message here is, is Psalm chapter two or Psalm 2. So listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessels. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Why do the nations rage? Saul actually thought that he was in charge, that he was going to go get David. He was going to prevent the Lord's anointed from ascending to the throne. That was his plan. Why do the nations rage? The Kela, the people, I don't remember what they're called, the, the people from uh, Kalia thought that they would do a good service and turn David over. Why do the nations rage? The Ziphites go and tattle on David. We're going to tell him exactly where he's at. We're going to get rid of, we're going to take care of this problem for the king and then we'll be favorites. Why do the nations rage? North Korea is arresting Christians, throwing them in, in, in prison for a long time. A third of their population, it's estimated, is in prison. Why do the nations rage? In Saudi Arabia, it's almost impossible to be a Christian. It's, there's so much oppression and so much opposition to the gospel. Why do the nations rage? We could keep listing and listing. You could go on Twitter and look at people's reaction to some of these Supreme Court decisions this week. Why do the nations rage? It's a rhetorical question. Why do they rage and plot in vain? The answer from Psalm 2 is, it doesn't matter. You're going to lose anyway. The better advice is kiss the sun. Because when his wrath comes, it's too late. So why do the Philistines invade Israel? Because God's in charge of it. He, he sees their raging. He sees their planning. He sees their schemes. They're going to take out Israel, and he just laughs at them. Watch this. So when we're, when we're looking at this whole picture again, and we put it all together, who's in charge? God is totally in charge. We heard it at the beginning. Jonathan said, you are, God is not going to give you into the hand of my father. We hear it again at the end. The Philistines came just in the nick of time. Thank you. The, the cavalry rode in. In the middle, what do we get? We get the nations raging. So this is a, an important message, and I want to encourage you with these words. That though we face opposition, that we face struggles, that we sometimes succeed, sometimes we set back, sometimes our brothers in Christ are persecuted and killed, sometimes they ascend to the, the, the throne of whatever country, uh, New Zealand, what, what country was that? Netherlands or something where a Christian was running for that office and they really made fun of her. As a matter of fact, one of the newspapers photoshopped poorly, photoshopped a Bible into her hand in a, in a picture. Why do the nations rage? That's the way it's going to go. So when Christians are in charge or opposed, back or forth, whatever, God's in charge. The, the, kiss the king, kiss the son, lest his wrath come. And so these are the words that we need to remember as we're waiting for Jesus' return. He told us, if they hate the master, they're going to hate his disciples. Just the way it is. If they treated me like this, they're going to treat you like that. But I told you these things so that when it comes, you won't be surprised. I, I told you, I sent Jonathan to you to tell you, you will sit, he, you, we're going to sit on the throne with Jesus. It's going to happen. 
And so this is how in the wilderness, as we're wrestling through this, as we're trying to fight our way through, how we can have what the author said in that devotional, that we can wait with expectant hope because we're reminding ourselves of these things, because we're recognizing this wasn't just in Jeremiah's day. This went all the way back to the beginning of the monarchy in David's day. It goes back even further because in the garden, the promise was the seed of the woman will crush the seed, the seed of the serpent. The struggle between the world and the king, the coming king, was always there. And it will always be there until Jesus returns and reigns for us. Encourage one another with these things. That, that's what eschatology is supposed to do for you. Um, not a morbid fascination with the, the front page of the newspaper this week, but to build hope and expectation. Good news, my friends, Jesus is coming back at any moment. Isn't that great? I can't wait. You think there's injustice in the world? Wait till you see the, the, the king deal with that. It's going to be wonderful. In the meantime, we're on the mountain in Moan, and Saul's men are coming from the left and the right, and they're about to get us. Anybody worried about that? Kiss the sun, lest his wrath come. God is going to put his, his uh, king on the throne. It's going to happen. So this is how we wrestle through in these difficult times. This is how we interpret all of the things that are going on is Jesus is coming back, and that gives us hope. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we do look forward to that day. Um, I just, I, I remember the, the way that Paul described it in 1 Thessalonians 4, about you coming with the, the, the shout of an angel, with the blast of a trumpet, with those who have died in Christ in your train right behind you, and then we who are on earth caught up into the sky, into the clouds to join you. What a beautiful picture of your return. What a strong, strong entrance you make, Lord. And Lord, we look forward to that day. Um, it's been a while, but we know that you will come at the right moment, at the right time. And so, Lord, in the midst of it, we trust that you are going to return when it's right. Lord, would you encourage us with these words and help us to encourage each other with these words. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.